Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord. We have such a need for role models for young people today. The saint about whom we will be talking to you today is just such a perfect role model for the youth. His name is Saint Aloysius Gonzaga, patron saint of Catholic youth. Saint Aloysius or Luigi Gonzaga, as he was baptized, was born on March the ninth, fifteen sixty-eight, in a castle in Lombardy, Italy. Into a family of wealth and position, he was the oldest son of Don Ferranti, the Marquis of Castiglione, and Marta Tana Santana, who, as a part of the royal court of Philip II of Spain, was lady of honor to the queen. Not only did his mother have a highly esteemed honor, his father had a prestigious position in the court as well. So, baby Luigi was born into the velvets and purples of his century. He came from a people who had resisted the Holocaust of Lutheranism and Calvinism that had swallowed up whole nations in the northern part of Europe. The Spaniards held fast to their faith, even after almost seven hundred years of domination by the Moors, when uttering the name of Jesus and worshiping in the Catholic Church was punishable by death. When she ascended to the throne, their Catholic Queen Isabella determined never again would her fair land be lost to Jesus and His Church. When the Church was again threatened, Isabella's loyal sons blocked the enemy from entering her land and conquering the souls of the faithful. She had claimed them for Jesus and Spain, a land of soldiers and poets. Fought to keep Spain for Jesus and His Church. When Ferranti's first-born son came into the world, like most fathers, he had a dream for Luigi to be a great soldier. His son would fulfill his father's dream for him, but as a soldier of Christ, Ferranti began executing his plan. When at age four, he started his son off with a miniature battlefield, equipped with a set of tiny soldiers, scale model guns, and all forms of battle regalia. All in minuscule dimensions. Then, at five years old, his father took him to Casa Maggiore, where three thousand men were being trained to join a Spanish expedition. The little boy was enthralled with all the parades and the life-sized soldiers practicing real-life maneuvers. It was like a huge playground, and he was playing with the big guys. The months spent there were like a dream come true for a little boy. He was allowed to join the big soldiers marching in the parades, often up in front of the a platoon. He was a sight to behold. They outfitted him with a long wooden spear, sporting a metal arrowhead, which he carried slung over his tiny shoulder. The spear, at least four times his size, trailed behind him as he jauntily, proudly trying to keep up step with his brothers. Luigi was a typical little boy, left on his own, open to mischief. One day he picked up a gun which someone had carelessly left around for a little person to find, and the opportunity presenting itself, he loaded the musket with ammunition and fired it off while the entire camp was resting. After they were sure he was unharmed, they were not very happy soldiers. His father wanted him to be a soldier. Well, he was learning, but I don't think it was what his father had in mind when he brought him there. Hanging around the soldiers, he almost became part of the woodwork, and they hardly noticed him listening to their flowery language. He learned a vocabulary which was not in keeping with the gentleman and future knight. When he returned home, he innocently repeated the colorful but coarse language. His tutor carefully explained such language was not only scandalous but blasphemous, and made Jesus most unhappy. 
Little Luigi, head downcast, was deeply remorseful, tears spilling from his eyes at the thought he had wounded Jesus. Even years later, he still sorrowed over the sin which he had so grievously committed. At age seven, the hounds of heaven began to pursue Luigi. Although he had been saying morning and evening prayers when he was just a baby, his spirituality accelerated when at age seven he began reciting the office of Our Lady, the seven penitential psalms, and other devotions. He could be seen praying on his knees on the bare stone floor without the comfort of even a cushion. He so completely surrendered his life to God, his spiritual director, St. Robert Bellamine, as well as his other confessors, said they believed Luigi never committed a mortal sin in his lifetime. In 1577, at nine years old, his father took Aloysius and his brother Rodolfo to Florence, Italy, where tutors were to help the boys improve their Latin and learn Italian. His later writings, rather than reflecting progress in the sciences of the world, Aloysius calling the city of Florence the mother of piety, showed the great strides he made there in the sciences of the saints. By introducing him to the lives of the great Tuscan saints Catherine and Bernardine of Siena, to mention a few, God was forming the young boy into a spotless vessel. Florence has always been a city of great contrasts, as Aloysius would soon discover. As son of a nobleman, he was required to appear at the Grand Duke's court frequently. There, he saw the seamier side of Florence, a civilization polluted by deceit, an unquenchable thirst for power, an all-consuming greed, which stopped at nothing to fill its gluttonous desires, poison, fraud, licentious behavior, perversion of all kinds permeated the court. Rather than lead the young nobleman Aloysius into a life of decadence and self-will, he became more and more aware it was the devil's handiwork, and it caused him to more ardently desire a chaste, virtuous life. He protected not only his soul, but the cherished souls of his companions, sharing with them spiritual exercises and disciplines reminiscent of the early Desert Fathers. It is clear God was bestowing extraordinary grace on him, but the Lord having won his heart, Aloysius was cooperating with that grace. He would avert temptation, shielding his eyes and soul from the women of the court, keeping his eyes lowered in their presence. Modesty was his vanguard, allowing no one to see his body, concealing it from even his valet. Two years passed when Aloysius and his brother had to move once again. Their father, in response to the Duke of Mantua, making him governor of Montserrat, brought his two sons to Mantua to serve in the Duke's court. Aloysius was not quite 12 years old. The move was exceedingly painful for him and counterproductive to boot. Aloysius had already decided to relinquish his right as the eldest son to the title of Marquis of Castiglione to his younger brother, brother Rodolfo. Now, as heir apparent, Aloysius was required to make appearances in court. God to the rescue. Aloysius was debilitated by a diseased kidney and had to curtail his activities. Confined to his quarters, Aloysius began earnestly devouring stories of the saints and, when not reading, praying. Aloysius had an unquenchable thirst to learn about the faith and the history of the church. God's church was under attack, Luther and Calvin trying their best to lead the faithful away from the church. God raised up a saint in the midst of a decadent society checks and balances. Aloysius became interested in the Jesuits. A book he had been reading told of the evangelization brave Jesuit missionaries were doing in India. This burned Aloysius' heart. 
He could think of nothing but becoming a Jesuit missionary, leaving for India and working toward the conversion of unbelievers to Jesus and the Catholic Church. Waiting upon the Lord to send him to India, in preparation for his ministry in India, he spent his summer months and holidays teaching catechism to the poor children of Castiglion. Then, summer over, Aloysius would spend his winters in Casale Monferrato, going from one church to another, borrowing spirituality from both the Capuchins and the Barnabites. He began to practice the ascetic life of a monk. He fasted three times a week solely on bread and water. He flagellated himself with a whip. He would rise at midnight and pray on the stone floor. Even in the sweltering days of summer, the rooms in castles are cold and damp. Aloysius would not permit a fire to warm his room, no matter how cold it was. 1581, Aloysius' father was called by the crown to accompany the Empress Maria of Austria from Bohemia to Spain. When they arrived in Spain, Aloysius had to face another crisis. He and Brother Rodolfo were selected to serve as pages to the Prince of Asturias. Although his heart was elsewhere, out of obedience to his father and loyalty to the emperor, Aloysius tirelessly cared for the young prince, helping him with his studies and addressing his every need. His faithful allegiance to his appointed task did not take away from Aloysius' commitment to saying his prayers, though. His usual spiritual exercises entailed hours. Aloysius had to be satisfied with the menial hour available to him for his daily meditation. But to meditate one hour without distraction, which was his goal, required hours of soulful preparation. Because of this, he appeared solemn and introspective. His mind seemed to be elsewhere. The other members of the court began to whisper about Aloysius. They started to make fun of him, say he wasn't human, and if he was, he was not quite all there. It was time to break it to his parents that he desired to become a Jesuit. He thought it best to tell his mother, then she could tactfully discuss it with his father. He had no problem with his mother, who immediately gave her consent. Now it was time for his father. His mother barely finished her sentence when his father blew. His temper overriding his good judgment, he fumed, he ranted, he raved, and then he threatened to have Aloysius whipped. It was hard for him to understand why a young man of privilege with a promising career ahead of him wanted to give it all up to become a missionary. However, friends of his at court who had noticed Aloysius' reserved prayerful demeanor convinced Don Ferranti of the boy's sincerity. His father reluctantly gave his consent on the provision he would wait until his obligation at the court was completed. It was obvious Don Ferranti was playing for time, but time was to run out. The young prince died. The two brothers were released from their duties. Their two-year stay in Spain over the family left for Italy, July 1584. Aloysius was now 16 years old. Upon arriving in Italy, they went directly to their estate and the war resumed on another front. Italy was not about to bring Aloysius any more relief than he'd had at court in Spain. His relatives, including the Duke of Mantua, joined in siding with his father to oppose vehemently the young Aloysius' aspirations to become a Jesuit. They called in reinforcements. Prominent clergy and distinguished laity took turns arguing, then pleading, cajoling, then attacking. Reasoning turned into threat-making, all to no avail. Aloysius was resolute in his desire to become a Jesuit. Don Ferranti left no stone unturned. He was fighting for what he felt was his son's best interest. Ferranti's God was one of position and power. 
How could he understand his son's God, who chose to be born of little estate and die for the sins of the world? A new plan. Send Aloysius to all the kings of northern Italy. His father was sure this would change Aloysius' mind. That failing, he insisted he accept different secular positions. Surely that would pique his interest and he would forget the whole foolish idea. But to his father's consternation, Aloysius was more adamant than ever to follow his star to Jesus through the Jesuits. Each day began with hope, only to end with disappointment. One day his father would give his consent, the next day he would take it back. This went on and on until the emperor sent a delegation with his edict that the right of succession to the seat of the Marquis of Castiglione had been transferred to Aloysius' younger brother, Rodolfo. Finally realizing all opposition was futile, his father gave his consent. At last, his parents having blessed him, Aloysius departed for Rome and his dream. At last, on November the 25th, 1585, now 18 year, years old, Aloysius entered the Jesuit novitiate house of Sant'Andrea. Settled in his tiny cell, he could be heard ecstatically exclaiming, This is my rest forever and ever. Here I dwell, for I have chosen it. Six weeks passed when his joy was turned to grief mixed with bliss. His father died, but not before having completely turned his life around. He called for a priest and was given the last rites of the church. His eldest son had relinquished claim in this world for service to his heavenly king and life eternal in his kingdom. Aloysius had refused a golden crown on earth, and God gave him the most precious crown, adorned with priceless stones and diamonds, the souls, including his father's, saved through his sacrifice and example. The sign of a saint is not the gifts bestowed upon him, like bilocation, ecstasy, the stigmata, reading men's souls, heavenly fragrance, and others. They are simply gifts from the Lord. It is the living out of a virtuous life in keeping with one's vocation. One of the greatest signs of sainthood is obedience. Spent the two years following his entrance into the novitiate, obeying even when he found it a hardship. His superiors, in an attempt to restore him to good health, required he have some form of recreation, curbing his fasting and making him eat more. Most trying of all, he was to try to divert his attention from the deeply spiritual. In this way, they hoped to prevent him from going into ecstasy. Forbidden to pray or meditate, except at designated times, he was to train his mind to refrain from dwelling on the treasures of heaven. This was the most difficult act of obedience, for Aloysius' heart already yearning for what lay ahead for him with the Father. He had joined the novitiate to live a life centered on the Lord and future life with him, and he was being asked to limit his thinking of him. It didn't make sense. By this sacrifice... Was God asking him to be there to do his will and to die to Aloysius' will? But how would he know the Father's will? Obey his superiors, even when he was not in agreement, especially when he was not in agreement. In the lives of the saints, we find God saying, in obeying our superiors, we are obeying him and doing his will. Aloysius made every action a prayer. Coming from the aristocracy, he was fully aware he was not proficient in physical labor of any kind. He had been trained to be a knight, not a peasant. But this is what he chose to do. The more humble the assignment, the more subservient the job, the more physically and demeaning the work, the happier he was. 
As with Saints Anthony of Padua and Teresa of Avila, he found God among the pots and pans. He loved to work in the kitchen, washing dishes and cleaning up after others. He genuinely performed all the servile duties allowed him with excitement. What the world judged menial, he found meaningful. One day, at a novitiate in Milan, as he was praying, he had a vision revealing he would not be on earth much longer. This filled his heart with unfathomable joy, and from that time he had only one focus, to prepare for things above. He more and more separated himself from the distractions of the world. His superiors saw his health getting progressively worse, his strength ebbing out of him. The weather in Milan tended to be harsh in the winter. In Rome, the climate was tempered and consequently more agreeable to his health. It was decided that Aloysius would go there to complete his studies in theology. Upon arrival, he managed to choose the most austere nick in the house, a room in the attic. A tiny window in the roof of his room provided the only light, which at rare intervals cut through the darkness to brighten his little cubbyhole. His simple furnishings consisted of a bed, a chair, and a stool upon which he placed his books. But to him, this was more splendid than the most magnificently adorned room in the palaces where he had lived. Here he and the Lord could communicate undisturbed. The other seminarians commented they could see him deeply absorbed meditating. He seemed oblivious of his surroundings at school, and when walking in the corridors of the cloister, he would become so deeply contemplative he would often be seen going into ecstasy at the most unlikely places at the most unlikely times. It could be at dinner or during his strictly prescribed recreation time. Lost in prayer, unaware of his surroundings, the noise, the other students, he would be deeply immersed in some sort of dialogue with another people in another world, the ecstasy. Even when the other seminarians called to him, shouting that recreation time was over and they had to go back to class, he did not acknowledge them. Restricted to the amount of time he could spend contemplating God, as it would bring him into a state of ecstasy and further weaken his health, whatever time he did have was filled with unsurpassable joy. He so longed to be united with Jesus in heaven. He would get lost in ecstasy. As with other saints, just the thought of the Lord, the mere mention of his name, would lead him to contemplate the Lord He would someday, the one he would behold on his beatific vision, and that was enough to have him to go into ecstasy. His superiors tried to restrain him, but that failing, all they could do was pray the Lord would keep this little future saint in their midst a little longer. It was 1591. Luther and Calvin had swept Europe with their heresies, cutting away at the very heart of the faithful, causing division. Mankind, confused, started to turn away from God. Then a plague broke out. An epidemic spread until it reached and ravaged Rome. No one was excused from its tentacles of pain and misery, the dead piling high in the streets, with barely enough well people who would dare take them away. Loved ones, often frightened of catching the dreaded disease, left the ill to die, uncared for, alone. The Jesuits opened a hospital to tend the sick. With the Father General leading the way, other Jesuits risked their lives, spending every waking moment giving solace and comfort to the sick and the sacraments to the dying. Aloysius begged and was reluctantly given permission to work alongside his fellow Jesuits. He went among the ill, bathing them with love and compassion. 
An angel of mercy, he was very often responsible for bringing them closer to Jesus, preparing them to meet their Savior. He tended them, placed cold cloths on their feverish foreheads, cleaned them, gently washing their pain-racked bodies. No job too menial, too trivial. To him, they were Jesus, and he had an opportunity to soothe Jesus' wounds, as he could not while he was alive. In this way, by soothing their wounds, these the least of his children, he was, in his way, soothing the wounds of his Lord. Jesuits, aiding the sick and dying, fell victims to the plague, and Aloysius, nursing them, caught the death-threatening disease. Aloysius, believing that this was the end, was filled with joy. This was what the prophecy meant. This was how and when he was to die. He was soon to be with Jesus. Anxious to be on his way, he received viaticum and was anointed. His delight was all too premature. To the amazement of everyone, especially his own, he recovered. But the epidemic left its scars. A low fever further crippled him. He he was reduced to an invalid, barely able to lift his head. He went from bad to worse. He was confined to his bed. At night, when he could muster enough strength, he would rise from bed and worship his Lord on the crucifix. He would painfully shuffle from holy picture to holy picture, kissing our Blessed Mother, all the angels and the saints depicted. Then, braced between the bed and the wall, he knelt and prayed for as long as his strength held up. Paradise's dream, he humbly asked his confessor and spiritual director, if it was possible that anyone could go directly to God in heaven without passing through purgatory. St. Robert Bellarmine assured him, it was not only possible, but knowing him the way that he did, it was altogether feasible Aloysius would receive that grace from God. With that, Aloysius fell into a deep ecstasy that lasted through the night. It was during this time he was to learn he would die on the octave of Corpus Christi, the feast day of the body and blood of Jesus in the Eucharist, whom he so passionately loved. On each of the eight days, Aloysius intoned the Te Deum in thanksgiving for the Lord, for deeming it his will that Aloysius would soon see him. Those with him would at times hear him recite, I rejoiced when they said to me, we will go into the house of the Lord. At other times he would say, we are going gladly, gladly. On the eighth day of the octave, he looked so much better, they spoke of sending him to the town of Frascati. Aloysius joyfully greeted him with, We are going, Father, we are going, to which the provincial asked, Where? Aloysius replied, To heaven. The provincial, seeing the great improvement in Aloysius, said, Listen to the young man. He speaks of going to heaven as we speak of going to Frascati. Evening came. As Aloysius was looking so well and definitely out of danger, they left him with just a couple of Jesuits. All the rest were relieved of their watch and sent to bed. But at Aloysius' insistence, St. Robert Bellarmine intoned the prayers for the dying. The little soldier of Christ lay still, breaking the silence with his occasional whispering, Into thy hands. No one believed he was dying until he suddenly turned for the worst. It was between eleven and twelve o'clock at night when they noticed his labored breathing. He began to seek deeper and deeper into the world he so often spoke of. His earthly strength giving out to new promise and heavenly power, he began to breathe his last. His eyes fixed on the crucifix he so loved, he called out, Jesus. And at midnight the evening of June the 20th, the boy who traded the riches of this world for those of the next went home. He was 23 years old. 
Miracles began to happen immediately. In so short a time of the virtue and piety, the holiness of this young man who lived his life with an eye on eternity spread to all parts of Italy, the rest of Europe, and then across the sea to the United States. Living a holy life on earth, he received the key to eternal life with his Savior. He was proclaimed a saint by Benedict XIII on December the 31st, 1726, named Protector of Catholic Students of the Entire World. And then, on November the 22nd, 1729, and in 1926, Pope Pius XI declared him patron saint of the youth of the world. We are in the days of great saints and deadly sinners. Live your life with your eyes on Jesus, and he will lead you to sainthood and home. Cast your lot with the enemy of God with his false fleeting promises, and he will not only betray you on earth, he will drag you down with him to the bowels of hell. Saints like St. Aloysius made a choice in life while very young. He chose the crown awaiting him in heaven rather than the temporary crown on earth, which will tarnish. Look in the mirror. What do you see? Is that the one you want to stand before our precious Lord who loved you so much when asked, How much do you love me? Opened his arms wide on the cross and said this much, We love you. You can be a saint. In these times, when it seems as if all is lost, God is also once again raising up saints. As Louis-Marie de Montfort said, saints unsurpassed at any time in our history. Parents, we need role models for our young people. We must give them role models to combat those that the world is giving them. This beautiful St. Aloysius Gonzaga is a perfect role for the Catholic youth. Young people, learn about St. Aloysius. Follow him. See if you can learn from this beautiful young saint in our church. Stay with us each week as we bring you Super Saints, true role models of a real world, not an unreal one that we are asked to worship today. We love you. God bless, God bless you. you. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here's how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the app store, search for Bob and Penny Lord app, and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel, where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN, plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.